Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Kynan Carver of the government services contractor Maximus on implementing zero trust to improve cybersecurity, and Dale Davis of Ultratech Capital Partners with an update on the tech and innovation ecosystem. But first, our tech headlines for the week. After five shark attacks in two days last week, New York State officials are going to use drones to detect the marine predators to give more warning to bathers on Long Island beaches. Governor Kathy Hochul added 10 drones to the state's fleet, bringing the total to 18. Defense Innovation Unit is partnering with commercial space firms to enhance both military and civil bandwidth, as well as security, to help realize the hybrid space architecture that it's developing with the Space Force and the Air Force Research Laboratory. And the Atlantic Council Cyber Statecraft Initiative is warning that cloud computing is being adopted faster than policymakers are acting, resulting in security shortfalls. Joining us now is Kynan Carver, the federal cybersecurity lead at cybersecurity firm Maximus. Kynan, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to have you on the program. Thank you for having me on, Bago. Uh, It is uh, a pleasure and a quick word from our sponsors. Our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air uh, and naval uh, coverage. Uh, Kanan, thanks very much uh, for uh, joining us. And just really quickly, tell uh, the audience what Maximus does, right? I mean, there are a number uh, of firms in the ecosystem, some uh, small, some much larger, but each play uh, their role in the ecosystem. Give the audience just sort of a brief introduction on what Maximus does. Yeah, so Maximus is a system integrator. Um, we do everything from healthcare down to, you know, technology consulting services, which includes, you know, technology in the federal space, which, you know, encompasses everything from cybersecurity to cloud to digital modernization to AI in advanced analytics. Uh, it is uh, in, in, indeed a, a broad portfolio and makes you kind of an ideal person to join us uh, on, on some of these uh, conversations. I want to go to uh, something that it's been a while since we've covered it. You've uh, written uh, about uh, this and spoken about it as well, uh, right? We all want to get to a zero trust architecture, right? That is central to uh, the administration's ni- national uh, cyber uh, strategy. Um, but the biggest vulnerability that we have, and one that's acknowledged both by federal, uh, you know, uh, chief information officers or chief information security officers, is the staggering amount of old hardware and software we have. Right? I mean, one of the reasons your iPhone um, gets all the updates it does is there's security updates, and you don't have to think twice about it. Whereas just about anything across the federal government um, tends to be a little bit more complicated. The infrastructure is vast. Um, and so that leads to vulnerabilities and, and to breaches. Uh, how do you address the magnitude of this problem, even though it's one that we've been working on? And do we have our arms actually around a solution on this? So I believe that's where you know, the zero trust architecture was championed. And one of the forcing functions of making that, making that compliant by 2024 by um, Arnold Sherman, it's to really get at you know, that technical debt, if you will, that legacy equipment, legacy software, et cetera. Um, we need to push that boundary, right? And that's another reasons why, you know, JADC2 is something, or JWCC, excuse me, JWCC and, uh, well, JADC2 to a greater extent as well, 
is you know forcing the DoD to modernize its you know way of doing infrastructure to cybersecurity. And again, you know, zero trust has just been that that you know push or that lever that the DoD is using to again modernize um, the DoD at large. And part of that is the way that zero trust is um, across all of the segments of your your IT systems. Do we have a good plan to deal with this ultimately, right? So, you know, the Atlantic Council, as I said in the uh, introduction, uh, the Cyber State Crash uh, Initiative, uh, you know, maintains that, hey, we've been charging headlong into cloud services before policymakers are actually putting up uh, the right sort of infrastructure for it, right? So as a consequence, we're having a little bit more breach uh, breaches uh, there. From the zero trust standpoint, do, do we have an architectural solution uh, to this, a roadmap that gets us to the better security place that we need to, especially as whether it's on the cloud uh, or you know, in, in bifurcated, you know, distributed uh, databases that we have everywhere. Are, are we getting, is there, is there a plan that you think is sensible enough that gets us to where it is we need to be? And what's it take to do that? So I believe there is a plan. And again, the CIO office out of the DOD released the Zero Trust Strategy, which outlines both the framework and to a certain degree, the architecture. But I will say that the DOD is looking at creating those policy and getting at that technical debt. As you indicated, where the DOD is lacking is, you know, we deploy a piece of technology. What is the process in, in order to protect that said technology or deploy it correctly? Um, I, again, I think the DoD has a strategy behind it, um, but it's going to take time to obviously get those, those worked out. I also would mention that DISA's Thunderboom is a great example of how the DoD and obviously partnering with DISA is trying to get at you know, the zero trust architecture and introduce an um, architecture that you know, is referenceable by other DoD entities. I want to take you uh, to um, uh, ICAM, uh, which is uh, the um, identity credential and access management, right? I mean, it's, it is the heart of cybersecurity, right? Don't use password one, two, three uh, to, to, to basically uh, log on. That is one of the pillars uh, of uh, the, the, the strategy. Walk us through the kind of architectural approach that we need to take to this, because you know, we're going to increasing, uh, increasingly multi-factor authentication. You know, we've, we've got, uh, you know, hardware systems to try to do this. We have software systems to try to do it. Walk us through sort of what the, the best architectural approaches are and how, you know, AI and ever improving security technology can actually help us solve this problem. Yeah, what a great question. So, you know, CX is customer, you know, experience. Um, essentially, the way that we need to get at customer experience in regards to, um, you know, ICAM is the way that we're going to approach, like you mentioned, you know, using the, the password 123 isn't good enough. We need to start using multi-factor authentication. However, I would say part of your customer experience is, you know, making that logon process, that revalidation, um, essentially seamless or very easy for users to, to utilize. For example, if you're using something called Windows Hello, um, you can use something called a passless or passwordless logon, which is essentially a, a fancy name of saying you can use like your facial recognition as an example, so that when you're authenticating, 
you're not having to type in a, a password, right? You're not having to change that password every 90 days. You know, you can use your face, uh, your face metrics as a way to authenticate along with your CAC within the DOD and that's your, your MFA. Um, if you wanna go another step beyond that, you can ask, you can obviously ask for an additional pin that the user can create, which again, allows more customer experience to be better um, for the individual. Uh, but from a customer experience standpoint, right? The, yeah. it's, it's one thing to do it at a corporation, right? By fiat, and you can try to then get everybody moving mm -hmm. in, the, in the same direction. From a federal mm -hmm. standpoint, that customer experience has a lot of hands that touch it, especially when you get to a DOD uh, uh, side of uh, the equation, whether through the, um, uh, the defense information systems, right? I mean, DISA gets mm -hmm. involved in it. Um, the you know, letter agencies get involved in it. Um, you know, so what's the way to sort of build a much better um, security architecture at that uh, threshold on the government side of things where you know, we are, we are getting a little bit better into what the customer experience should be. But, you know, I mean, it's not the same thing as, you know, you working for Apple and figuring out, hey, what's the best way for us to do this that's actually, you know, works and is, is um, you know, pleasant for the customer. I think maybe DOD could do a better job of thinking about what the customer experience is, I guess I'm asking Kynan. What, what's, what's the way to sort of engineer this or um, novel approaches that the government could be using to get us to this goal of better security? at that front end? Great question. Um, like I said, Windows Hello, password, password list logon is one of them. Another thing they could utilize is soft tokens, um, utilizing your phone as a, another means of authentication, right? Like the NMFA itself. Um, I, I think there's a lot we can speak about and how you actually log onto the system. What, what is the, the actions you have to take that are less cumbersome, more intuitive, um, an example of that could be something as easy as, you know, when you're, you're logging into a, you know, a VPN in the future, that could be something that's automated where it's seamless to the user. You log into your PC, that then, you know, obviously authenticates locally. And then from there, jumps into your, your VPN in the background. You're not necessarily seeing this, but again, re-authenticates at the edge um, to your identity and to your, your PC itself. From a technological uh, standpoint, right? You guys are focused on architectural uh, solutions. What are the things that are on the horizon technologically, whether they're enabled by AI or anything else? I mean, I know AI is the hottest buzzword uh, going, even if it is starting to generate, uh, you know, I mean, it's existed for some time, but it is generating um, some interesting capabilities in terms of how it's advancing. But as, as you look a couple of years down the road, what are going to be the most important sort of enabling technologies that help us overall, whether we're in government industry or, or private life, improve uh, security? So I'll break it down in the following methodologies. Um, in regards to you know, identity access, I think deploying something like ABAC or attribute-based access control, and I'll briefly describe what that is. So if you're thinking of how you log in, right, you need to start in the, in the past, what we've done is role-based. So role-based would be, I'm a system administrator, I'm just a general user, et cetera, where we start shifting you know, to an attribute-based access control. Then we start getting into more of the fine attributes of the logon process. For example, if you're looking at a 
the subject attributes, you know, that's, you're looking at the individual's um, user role to the department, to location, to the time of day. Uh, another thing with user or attribute-based access control is resource attributes. Uh, for example, of those, those would be something like your resources name, the resources type and location. Um, and that gets into a couple other ones that include, you know, action attributes and then environment attributes. But all this is saying, all, all this leads up to when you start using AI and ML, um, they're going to start looking at these nuanced um, indicators, right? And it's no longer just going to be what role do I assume in this organization? It's going to be what do I, what do, who am I, either person, non-person, non-person is an example of a computer, where am I coming from, what part of the day, what, you know, resources are required, and then from there, should I be able to have read access, should I be able to, you know, write or delete, uh, etc., but all of these will end up being holistically taking consideration when accessing the system, and that's something that's, you know, going to fundamentally change what we as cybersecurity have to collect and process. Um, and that's where items like, you know, a SOAR, a you know, security orchestration automation response tool is going to use, you know, AI to essentially, you know, assess these individual data points. And there's going to be a lot more. And then make, you know, that automated decision, or if you like that AI-based decision on how to react to that potential threat or non-threat. And, and kind of talk to me a little bit uh, about speed and logic, right? Um, you know, I mean, that first question I was asking was the F-35 case, right? Here's a jet, new, you know, most capable fighter on the planet, cyber clean, arrives on a flight line, and then somebody plugs a 10-year-old maintenance computer to it. And when you look at development cycles, they're so long that the software in many of these systems, including the F-35, has, you know, or F-22 had the problem that had to be completely re-engineered. What, what is it we need to bear in mind about speed and security and that moving at the pace that we've been moving is just simply unacceptable? Uh, is, is, I mean, that is, you know what I mean? Nobody wants to move too fast. The problem is we're moving so slow. That's the problem. It, that is part of the, that is a major problem, you know, and I think you mentioned two things and I want to address both of them. One, you know, that tech that's using that computer we have to get you know, control over that. We have to create policies and processes that ensures that laptop that they connect to that weapon system is secure, is being tracked. And you know, we have full cyber awareness of it. So, but pivoting to your other question, you know, as, as ML or just AI becomes more capable, more aware, you know, when we start looking at a weapon system, the time to deliver a weapon system is quite incredibly long, but as these technologies advance, what you're going to see is, you know, our adversary using that technology, you know, in a lack of, you know, an actual F-35, right? Like they're going to start doing model and simulation about that, that weapons platform. And then what's the interesting thing is they're not trying to necessarily define what the architecture of that new weapon system, they're going to look for the gaps. And so they're going to go through a trial and error sequentially of, what are the holes and what are the potentiality of those holes in that weapon system? And that's what they're going to focus on for a, you know, a cyber threat or a cyber delivery system. Kainan, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Enjoyed the conversation very much and look forward to having you back on the program uh, in the future. All the best to you. All the best to you too, sir. Thank you.
And joining us now is Dale Davis, uh, a principal at Ultratech Capital Partners, an early stage investment company that is investing in uh, innovative firms that will be generating both commercial and military benefits. Uh, he is a former Marine with decades of experience in uniform, uh, operationally as an air defender, as well as an intelligence officer. Uh, and he has also uh, spent quite a bit of time in the innovation ecosystem as well. Dale, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to have you aboard. Uh, thanks. Uh, look forward to the discussion. Uh, so you guys are uh, engaged, obviously, uh, in the uh, technology ecosystem. You're an early stage investor, which in some cases is the easiest, but also the hardest part uh, of this uh, equation. Uh, and, you know, the government spends an enormous amount of time talking about uh, the the importance of getting uh, harnessing, you know, the national innovation base uh, for both commercial and military gain. We've been at this now for a while uh, that the department uh, is is trying to do this. From your standpoint, how's the needle moving? Right? W what are we getting? What's the what's the government uh, getting right, uh, both on the commercial, but as well, particularly on the defense side of things? And where could it use more work? Well, I think in terms of getting it right, the government has recognized that there are um, capabilities and technologies that are being uh, developed uh, and innovated in the commercial sector that have uh, great applicability to national security. They understand that they need to access those and that there's not necessarily a requirement to run through a sort of decades long um, research and development procurement um, process. The challenge that the government faces, though, is how to procure uh, those commercial, commercially available capabilities. There has been progress, so the needle has moved. I think uh, most would tell you the needle hasn't moved far enough or fast enough. But, uh, you know, with the, say, the creation of DIU and Ensign and some of the other innovation-focused organizations that report up to um, DOD, uh, we, we at least see the recognition of the requirement and um, the application of uh, resources to addressing the challenge. Um, the creation or the use of more broadly, broad, broad use of um, other transactional authority, I think is a good example, and particularly DIU's role in fast-tracking um, capability through to program of record. Um, is, you know, is a real uh, step change in the right direction, though we need to broaden those programs and we need to put in place some contractual or funding mechanisms beyond the current uh, small business innovation research grants right. uh, that are widely accessed, accessed by early stage businesses. We, we need to find a mechanism by either, uh, to, a mechanism to either um, extend those more broadly um, or to bridge the gap, which is often referred to as the valley of death, it's sort of the right. gap between limited SBIR funding and the program of record. And so DIU does some of that with OTAs, but they're still looking at companies that have very well-developed um, technology. The technology is typically TRL eight or nine. Um, they're not, there's really no mechanism to get a promising technology from TRL 5 to 8, where it would be eligible for, say, DIU funding. 
Um, so, you know, in one sense, right, we have more money than ever uh, because of a whole variety of measures uh, that the Biden administration proposed and Congress has accepted. So we have money in the system, uh, whether it's for semiconductors. I know you have a background in, you know, everything from the chip side of things to the uh, to the cyber uh, side of things. What are some things, uh, you know, and, and obviously the Atlantic Council uh, has a group that has uh, Dr. Esper, uh, former defense secretary, as well as uh, uh, Debbie Lee James, uh, who are working on, you know, figuring out some concrete proposals to sort of accelerate and supercharge the system. From, from your standpoint, what are some things that we need to do on that valley of death part of it? Because, I mean, I started my career, okay, maybe not started my career, but at least two decades of it has been focused on valley of death. I remember Brett Lambert used to talk about valley of death. I remember Jack Gansler talking about valley of death. Mm -hmm. And we're still talking about a valley of death. And, you know, any company worth their salt are like, look, Sybaris is not going to carry me through there, right? I mean, there, it's that's right. great when I'm tiny. What are some ways that we can do this, Dale, well, uh, from the yeah. standpoint of somebody who's engaged in underwriting these companies? Yeah, it's a great question. And, as, you know, the challenge is when you think about creating new contractual mechanisms, um, you know, anything new, anything new in the bureaucracy is, is difficult. I think you need to look for um, mechanisms that exist and use those more broadly. So from my perspective, there is a tool that should be applied more broadly. And it's uh, it typically referred to as the TACFI and the STRATFI. They're typically only used by the Air Force and really only used by AFWORK. So TACFI stands for Tactical Increase in Financing, STRATFI, st Strategic Increase in Financing. What they are, are contract contractual mechanisms to extend an SBIR um, or the work that has been funded under an SBIR program in a much broader sense. And I think with the TACFI, What's great about the TACFI and the STRATFI programs is there is a matching component requirement. So you can incentivize private capital to come in alongside the government and be a, effectively a co-investor with the government in the further development of um, a specific technology. And with the TACFI, it's, it's not a huge amount of money. It's, I think they, it's 1.7 million that the government will apply uh, to an equal amount uh, funded by third-party capital. But with the Stratfi, it goes up to about 15 million. Um, so that could be quite meaningful in terms of right. the development technology. And um, so far, it's been, th those awards are, are rare. Uh, my understanding is they've only been awarded by the Air Force. I could see this being a much more widely applied program um, if it was adopted by the other uniform branches of service um, and the Intel community. So there is a mechanism there. You don't have to recreate or create something new, which as we all know is challenging. Um, as long as you can get the uh, money mippered into that program uh, or you've got a buyer who will um, basically uh, support the, the use of that vehicle uh, to access the technology, you, you've got a means to do it now. Um, what's really nice also about the Stratfi, as I understand it, is it, it really it acts as a as sort of a um, as a sole source uh, IDIQ in the in in the sense that the company that holds that vehicle can um, use that vehicle to market their capability uh, across the government. It doesn't have to be used solely for the uh, initial um, recipient of the of the of the program or the initial client. 
So it's a great tool. It just uh, I don't I don't know why, and I'm not I'm not a contract specialist. I, I'm surprised right. that it, it hasn't been rolled out more broadly since the Air Force seems to be using it with pretty good right. effect, although sparingly. Um, let me uh, take you to the question of sort of skating to where the puck's going to be. Right, His, historically, this has worked better when the customer sort of tells you what their problems are. You know, these are the problems I need solving. Right. Um, and, and then you sort of have a better understanding of what problem you should be fixing as opposed to saying, oh, ooh, ooh, look, really great technology. Let's figure out how to use it in a military application. And sometimes, right. you know, yeah. you, you don't have some you don't have an angel or, or somebody who's willing to, you know, or a champion. From your standpoint, is the department doing a good enough job sort of framing the problems? I think DIU does a pretty good job at doing this. It, but is the government doing a good enough job to sort of frame like these are the problems in the next five years, these are the problems in the next 10 years. And then have you guys sort of come to them and say, hey, look, you know, if you wait five years, that all of those problems go away because this technology solves it. What you should be focused on is, mm -hmm. right, is there that push-pull happening so that they're better informed? Because we're doing some things with trusted capital, for example, like we're giving companies money that others won't. And sometimes that's just a bad idea, which, you know what I mean? I mean, there's there's capital that will go into ideas that will fog a spoon. If you can't attract any commercial capital, it, it might be more the idea you're pushing, right? Talk to us about that yin and yang. Is the department being clear enough about what it wants so that it actually, and what are the kind of things that they're wanting and you're investing in to present them in a couple of years from, from now? Yeah, so Heidi Shu's office, I think, has is, is been very clear about at the macro level about what the priorities are, uh, are for um, technology and innovation, everything from um, semiconductors and microelectronics, AI, um, uh, advanced materials, um, hypersonics, right? And, and, and a couple other, and there's like six or seven categories. Uh, but those categories tend to be very broad and the technologies within them, um, you know, just because it's hypersonic, well, Hypersonic probably has the most likely um, application to national security, but not all AI has a, a defense application. And so the individual uniform branches, I think, do varying levels of, or the even warfighting commands do varying levels of um, sort of definition, requirement definition. I think Softworks does a great job, right? Softworks sends out very specific requirements um, for their SBIR um, oper uh, funded opportunities. AFWorks probably does the same. Um, other branches, uh, less so. And the Navy tends, tends to still um, hold most of their, they like to do all their R&D themselves, right? And, but with, with Naval X, they're starting to branch out and we're starting to see a little more clarity around the requirements. As always with, I think, for anyone who's targeting the, um, uh, the armed forces and DOD as their primary client, then the need to have a very intimate understanding and relationship with the end user is very important. Now, we invest in companies that have com uh, that are developing technologies that have potential uh, application in the national security space, but we invest in them based on commercial, their commercial potential, not um, we're not betting on, you know, a, a new, faster, um, more lethal um, projectile, right? If we're betting on the applicability of a particular technology very broadly across the commercial sector, and that's where we're going to gain our return. 
And where we see the value is when it has a national security application, we can, we can introduce that to potential end users in the government space. And if they like it, we can access non-dilutive funding for the company that helps them to continue to develop that technology. But ultimately, the return is going to come from the commercial sector. Let me ask you one last question, uh, which is um, uh, access to capital. We've, we've on this program, talked to a number of uh, folks at very innovative uh, companies. And the case that they've been making over the last couple of years is it's, it's really tough to get your hands on capital. Uh, from, from your standpoint, what are the challenges? When does that resolve itself? Because um, there's a lot of dry powder sitting out there. And there are also a tremendous number of really great and interesting companies uh, that are that are out there. What's what's the yin and yang of this uh, as somebody who's living it on a day to day basis as you are? Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, when, you know, this, um, I guess we call it the most recent uh, instability of the economic or the macro level economic system, um, started to impact the venture capital market, I guess, about a year ago, um, funding was not, was not hard. And in, in fact, it was too easy. And I guess my first comment is, yes, for those founders that are finding it difficult to raise capital now, they may have been a little spoiled um, previously because it was a very uh, founder-friendly market and um, in capital was uh, readily available and um in the, the diligence sort of that uh, now informs decisions wasn't as robust. So I think now if you have a strong founding team, you've got a, a differentiated technology that's potentially disruptive and you have a clear path to um, commercial or let's just say client traction, funding is available, but it's not available at the terms that uh, many um, entrepreneurs had become accustomed to and would like to revisit. Um, so I think we're now in a stage, we've kind of worked through this uh, period of paralysis where a lot of uh, venture and private equity firms were sort of reassessing the current situation and considering how best to support their current portfolio companies because they knew that uh, we were going into a period of austerity and that there would probably be bridge financing required. So they stopped making new investments. I think we're emerging from that. And um, certainly we are, we are making new investments, uh, but we're considerably, considerably more discerning uh, about how we invest and who we invest in. Um, and the terms are much more, uh, um, I would say, investor friendly at this point, because capital is still, from the entrepreneur's uh, point of view, is probably considered scarce. Um, but I do think we've, we've emerged from that period. And I think there's we're moving towards a more balanced um, venture capital market where uh, where um, valuations are reasonable um, and, and capital is available, but there's a lot of emphasis on tangibility. Uh, you know, a lot of firms were being funded off the back of a PowerPoint pre presentation and an idea, and I think those days are long gone. Uh, and there are many people uh, who would argue that it's about time uh, for a little bit less uh, charlatanry uh, when, and, and PowerPoint slides and more sort of uh, concrete uh, deliverables, right? I mean, that's a criticism that's made EVTOL e bubbles that, we, uh, that we've seen as well. Exactly. I mean, we take, we take a lot of time. We do more diligence. We, you know, we came out of a private equity sort of owner, operator, investor background. Um, so we apply... We, we apply 
what many refer to as a, as a private equity um, approach to diligence, which was unusual, at least when we started the firm. Um, I think it's being more widely adopted now. So it's just a much more thorough approach to understanding how the technology, you know, where, where it, what's the materiality behind the current state of the technology? Uh, what's the strength of the team? What's the real addressable market look like? What are the obstacles to achieving success? And uh, what's it going to take to get there in terms of future financing? And, uh, it, and, and what's a, a reasonable valuation to assign to the company now, uh, as opposed to what it might achieve in two or three years? Uh, Dale, thanks so very much for uh, joining us. It's always a, a pleasure uh, and to talk to uh, somebody uh, thoughtful and knowledgeable in this field and would love to continue uh, the dialogue, especially as all these studies, reports and everything else come out and to touch base every now and then and, and get a temperature uh, of what the world looks like from uh, your uh, perspective. Because in the old adage, no bucks, no Buck Rogers, you're the bucks part of the Buck Rogers equation. <laughs> right. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you.